As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Out of the street corners, they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumor hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens, their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five games for Doomsday. Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week is a designer both in the world of tabletop and digital games, but also a commentator on the world of games in general. Digitally, he's a senior producer at The Sims and has designed Farmageddon, Cry Havoc and the upcoming Fort for the tabletop. My guest this week is Grant Rodiek. Grant, welcome to the cabin. Absolute pleasure. It's uh, quite nice in here. I see that you got rid of the spiders. I appreciate it. Yes, but the, uh, the human heads are still up, unfortunately. I think it's just, um, it's where we are at these times. It's the year we live in and it's, it is what it is. So to begin then, um, how hard was it for you to choose the five games that you wanted to take to the cabin? And, and one of the games is, is digital. So how hard was it to pick the games and, and where do digital and analog games lie in your heart? It wasn't that difficult, but I'm also a very decisive person and I'm willing to pick quickly and then get to the cabin and regret it and I'll just butcher the pieces and do something else with them. But um, it was, there were a couple that were just really obvious. Uh, You know, Call of Duty, I'm playing weekly. uh, (laughs) Don't give it away. Oh, oh, crap, crap, crap. (laughs) Um, I didn't know what, I didn't know. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> um, it was quite difficult. Um, I will say that uh, I tried to I try to pick. So let me take it back. When I'm looking at what I want to consider my top 10 to be, there's times where I sort of have a more pretentious top 10 on like this game deserves to be spoken of. Um, but then I have to sort of check myself and say, but this game you play all the time, weekly with friends, you laugh so hard when you play it, it would be silly to not 
to not consider this in there. So I'd say that right now you have a balance of games that I just love and adore and can play forever, but also a mix of like games that just inspire and excite and and make me tingle. And, And maybe it's also just a thing that, you know, the upside of the apocalypse is that I get to play a game that I'm dying to play a lot more. And so to what degree is uh, an exercise like this about curation? Uh, to what degree are you thinking about, I want to save this because it is it is an example of the art form that I want future generations to be able to acknowledge? I will say that one of those, which I won't reveal yet, um, absolutely both matches that uh, uh, qualification as well as just I think it's an absolute joy to play it's 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 a really just beautiful product um but i think i think most of them are things that i'd be willing to throw into a backpack get dirty and smudged with apocalyptic cheeto dust so um i think there's mostly the one there that to me i i sort of hold as sacred and maybe it would become the the trophy and a relic of a great religion in the cabin but um we have to see how this this world evolves but you see with you see with new new art forms, so this happened when the novel came out, that when the novel first came out, it was considered ephemera, unimportant, uninteresting, not art. And you see people talking about games in that way, but you also see a creeping towards the kind of regard of games in the way that you talk about other art forms. Where do you stand on the games as art question? It's interesting because uh, this is a debate that's been happening in video games for quite a while now. And I've, I've professionally been in that space for 15 years now. And I definitely see as the, the board game space gets more mature and you have um, a broader range of creators, which means you have a broader range of potential for high art and, and just exceptionalism. Um, I think it's very interesting. I, I will say that like, I pretty firmly believe that a game is designed to be played and I am less interested in, in uh, I'm less interested in experiences that exist to explore a thing, but they aren't exactly fun or they aren't interesting to play. So to me, the bar is such that I want it to be fun and engaging, but then I also want it to be unique. And then I want to see thoughtfulness and craftsmanship and how the components and the tactile nature is infused. I think something that's really important for tabletop is that the two things that make tabletop wholly distinct from video games is the tactile nature, the physical components. And I think games that really lean into that and and take advantage of that fact are going to be more special and exceptional. And I also think that games are inherently more social. Tabletop games are inherently more social than video games. And people think that's weird because they're like, what? I, I play with my friends all the time. And I think that that space is seeing a revolution as well with like, you know, teenagers hanging out in Fortnite, like we might hang out in the mall growing up. So I think that that's going to change a little bit. But I think that tabletop games, and the reason I really found myself drawn to them about a decade ago is it brings a group of friends together in a, in a shared space, um, not so much right now, but before all this. And we can have a cocktail, a glass of wine, and we can look each other in the eye and we can, we can mess with each other and we can talk and we can laugh and we can um, almost like a family sitting around the dinner table. We could talk about the day and we could talk about work. And I just don't do those things in video games. Um, even when I play with people that are like very near and dear to my heart, just because I find that video games are so taxing on your attention 
that you can't do that. So I think that the art form of tabletop, to get back to your original answer, is really going to come down to, is it fun? Is it a thing that you can play? Does it really take advantage of that tactile, physical nature? And is it a thing that allows people to socialize and, and be among their people? I'm I'm very much a believer in great art also functioning in the in the in the medium that it's delivered i i I have the opinion for instance that stanley kubrick was the best genre filmmaker of the 20th century his films are interesting and good and entertaining as well as being great great art but do you think games in and of themselves can tell us something about who we are i absolutely think that like i have joked for years that I would love to interview people by playing a game with them because I think that you see people's personality shine through and how they play. Like, so for example, and you see this in all of my designs, I don't like chaos, but I'm very comfortable with chaos. I'm very comfortable with uncertainty. And so my games are all about mitigating probability, dealing with uncertainty, dealing with that unknown interaction that an opponent might do to you. I'm very fascinated by that as a principle. Um, I'm never AP when I play games. I'm incredibly decisive. I take my turns incredibly quickly. Um, I have very strong sort of gut instincts. So oftentimes when I play a game for the first time with friends, I, I usually win the first time, but then I start to lose. But then I will sort of study and evolve and I'll get competitive again. But I'm, I have a very good first examination of a lot of games. Um, and then you can see other people who are more cautious or more wary of making a bad decision or want to take a moment to evaluate their options or um, shy away from uncertainty. And so I, I think that games absolutely reveal who someone is and what their personality is. So let's go back to the beginning then. So in the bio you sent to me, you painted a picture of an incredibly idyllic childhood growing up in Texas. Is that entirely true? What was it like growing up in Texas in what I assume was the 80s, early 90s? Yeah, so I was born in 83. So early 80s, um, early 90s were sort of my formative years. I I had a really good childhood. I had had great parents. They, you know, uh, let me play sports and got me a trumpet and, and, you know, bought me every book I wanted to read. So like, um, I had very, you know, good parents, but I also spent a lot of time in the suburbs, you know, riding my bike and going and exploring the woods nearby and building forts and, and um, having super soaker wars and, and telling stories about them. Um, my grandparents had a ranch in South Texas that was over a thousand acres and the whole ranch, which was owned by the family that I could access was 5,000 acres. And so when I was 13, I was driving around in a Jeep, um, you know, with a 22 rifle going through the brush and, and, you know, exploring the world and building things. And so I, I had a, I had a lot of fun and I think that uh, it, it allowed me to entertain myself and, and be okay moving around and bumbling around and figuring things out and just being aware of my surroundings. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, and I'm sad that like, you know, the ranch is gone now and, and all that has changed. Uh, and I'm from, I'm from sort of chocolate box, middle England, very pretty, but also England is quite densely populated, and it feels much more like the Shire than 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 bigger places. What is it like growing up in a place that is just huge? That the, the the horizon stretches off into infinity. It's quite weird because you know you could you could just drive around Texas for 
12 hours and not exit the state. It's, it's quite a large place. Um, and it's such a big place that if you're on the east side, you have, you know, forests and swamps. And if you go south, you have the beach and arid desert as you approach Mexico. And there's um, quite mountainous areas. I had another friend whose, whose parents had a ranch that we would go to. And it was in like a very mountainous uh, area that was quite fun to explore as well. And so it's, it's just interesting. Like it's, it's, it's weird to think about it now, but a lot of my childhood was spent in the country in the summer with my grandparents, uh, you know, bumbling around and just exploring space and, you know, getting into trouble, but not really getting into trouble. Like mostly just, you know, setting fires here and there or using fireworks in a way we shouldn't or uh, building something. Uh, I remember one of the forts we built was technically on land owned by the Army Corps of Engineers and we built the tree house and all this other stuff. And one day we went there and the Army Corps of Engineers had apparently showed up, didn't like that and completely sanitized the space. And so we're like, well, maybe we don't build here anymore. So it was just, it was a lot of fun. There's a lot of possibilities. And, you know, as much as I love games and video games now, like growing up, I definitely, you know, and we had a Nintendo and and we had a PC in the early nineties, but I definitely didn't spend a ton of time indoors playing games because I spent a lot of time outside. And a lot of that also had to do with the fact that my mom would just unplug the the TV if we didn't leave. And do you feel Texan? And is there a sort of is there a sort of Texan identity? And if there is, how much does it map onto what the rest of the world imagines a Texan to be? There is absolutely a Texas personality. Texas is one of those places that it's um, it's very proud of itself. It's almost nationalistic, but it's a state. It very much like you see the Texas flag everywhere. You see don't mess with Texas everywhere. You see slogans. Um, Texans think Texas is the best and um, it's interesting. I, so I, I left Texas when I was 17 to go study at the University of Oklahoma for four years. And I more or less lived there year round for four years. And then the day I graduated from there, I drove across the country to California and I've lived there ever since. And like, I love California. It is my favorite place on earth. I would never leave. And so I don't think I embody that Texas spirit per se. And maybe that's a little bit of me not wanting to be tied to my past too much or, 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 or what have you. Um, but I definitely enjoy going home and I enjoy sort of the country music that you hear. And I enjoy the Tex-Mex food and the great tortillas. Um, and so I don't mind visiting from time to time, but uh, I, I do believe that a lot of the times um, and people from Texas might get mad at me, but I believe that what you assume of Texas is I think pretty accurate, but I'd also say that like I now live in a gigantic state of California, which has a different way of being obnoxious about being California. But we here are also like very much about California, the weather, the, 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 the food, the, you know, the, the personalities and stuff. So I think that when you have States as big with as much of their own history as places like California and Texas, it's, it's only natural that they almost create that culture unto themselves. And do you put beans in your chili? Yes. But I also don't, I I don't cook chili that often. So I I don't think I'm a chili purist. Um, But I do, I do like beans in my chili. I basically, I think chili to me is like beans, chili or beans, beef um, or ground turkey. I don't mind that either. Um, Shredded, shredded cheese, dollop of sour cream, um, maybe some hot sauce, uh, chopped onions. So that's that's sort of where I go for chili, but I don't think I'm the one you should come to for a a strong chili opinion. So you you've already mentioned that you studied at the University of Oklahoma. What did you study there, and and how did that set you up for a career in gaming? 
I studied international business administration, and I think the way it set me up for a career in gaming is that I was terrified of leaving college and spending the next 30 years of my life as a salesperson for a generic, you know, paper selling company. My dad was in sales for a long time, worked his butt off, was good at it. But like, I also watched, you know, his companies over time get bought out by a bigger company and then liquidate the sales force. And then my dad would have to find a new job. And like, as he got older, that got harder and harder. And that just sort of terrified me. So I think one is that I wanted to do something different. And early on in college, I sort of realized that you know, video games were a viable career. That was a viable thing. And so then I sort of became obsessed with figuring out how to do that. And the story of that is uh, I wrote for a website for four years in college, uh, back then called an e-zine, sort of pre-blog in terminology. And um, I mostly wrote like humor and weird stuff. And then my senior year, I was sort of the head of the website, um, kind of the lead producer, you might say. And I didn't have time to write full time with college and that new responsibility. So I just wrote a column and I wrote a column about video games. And then a contact I had in the business college was an EA sports like intern. Um, University of Oklahoma is a big football school. So he'd basically show up and host events where people would play, you know, Madden football or NCAA football and win a free copy of the game and yada, yada, yada. And EA had reached out to him and said, hey, the Sims team is making an expansion about going to college. We want to have a bunch of college journalists come and cover the game. Can you recommend somebody from your university? He said, well, Grant is obsessed with video games. He knows all about it. You should talk to him. And so my senior year of college, I got flown out to California. I got a tour of the facilities. I got to meet the senior producer and the lead designer and, and you know, check out the game. And I wrote some good articles, but I also started networking. And, and basically, I told him, this is all I want to do. You have to hire me. And... I was very respectful. I was very professional. I would check in every couple of months. I happened to get press credentials to E3. And so I flew back out there again for E3 and the senior producer just happened to be there. So I got to say hi again. And then basically the day I graduated, I filled my Honda Civic with all my stuff and I sent him an email saying, Hey, I took a crappy sales job in San Francisco just so I could move out there. Um, The only reason I'm moving out there is so that I can work for you. You should hire me. And uh, two and a half weeks later, I got the interview. I quit my sales job, and then I happened to get the EA job as well. And so I've been there more or less um, ever since. And so you you said earlier that you got into to hobby games about sort of ten years ago. Was this in San Francisco that you discovered them? Yes. Yes, I was. Um, I had briefly left EA. I call it my year abroad, and I was at a startup. Um, and there was a, a, an engineer there who was playing lots of board games, and he introduced me to Modern Art, which is one of the first games I bought. I still love. In fact, I think I have four copies of Modern Art now of different versions. Uh, we played uh, Dominion. We played Ticket to Ride. Uh, we played um, – what else did we play? I think we played Memoir, but I'm not sure. Oh, Seven Wonders. And um, I just thought, oh, these are really great. And that was also sort of a thing where I've been playing video games just extensively since about – 2001, where I graduated high school and went to college, because I started playing games a lot more in college. And I was starting to you know, play the, the fourth version of this game and the seventh version of this game, and they're all kind of the same. And so I was starting to check out from video games, and tabletop games was a whole new space to explore. Uh, it was something that my friends were also interested in. And so we found that as we were starting to transition out of going to bars and stuff, that we were starting to hang out and have conversations and play games. So that worked with my social life. But also I found that Creatively, I desperately needed 
a way to uh, 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 express myself. Um, and video games are obviously much more complex. You have to code and do the art. Um, there's also a sort of competition problem with my company. And so tabletop games gave me a way that I could explore design however I wanted. I could even afford to pay illustrators and stuff to illustrate the games I made. And due to the scale, I could basically do whatever I wanted without really any consequences for market viability. And so I just really got obsessed with playing games to learn about the different mechanisms, having my friends over to do something different than what we'd been doing, and just as a way to start creating my own stuff. It was a lot of fun. So your first game then is an is a bona fide classic. It is one of the pillars of hobby games. And this is Carcassonne. Why do you think it's a classic? I think it is I think it is satisfying every step of the way. You you draw a tile, it's got surprise and uncertainty. You get to hold the tile in your hand. You look at this map, you add it there. It might help you. It might hurt your opponents. You might have drawn the one tile that can fit in a space that someone blocked you earlier and you get to say, ha ha, screw you. Um, I think that at two players, it is an amazing head-to-head, just deep strategy game. But uh, with more than two players, I think it almost is like a party game where everyone's sitting around the tile, you know, messing with each other. I... I love Carcassonne. I just, I just think it's, it's so satisfying just every second of the game. And the issue, you hear this with Catan, you hear this with Carcassonne, the issue with becoming part of the canon is that people want to take shots at it. Do you think that time is the enemy of board games? I think that time is the enemy of board games that are quickly cashing in on trends. Um, you know, I think time is going to be the enemy of a lot of roll and write games. Cause like right now there's a thousand roll and write games of people piling on. And I think a couple of them are brilliant. And I think a lot of them are just. As humans we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, copycats. And so I don't think time is going to be generous to something like that. But I think, to me, time only affirms the brilliance of Carcassonne. And in fact, I've played a handful of the expansions. I've mixed and matched it. And like my favorite way to play is still the original game by itself because 
I just think it's so satisfying and it's so wonderfully crafted. Um, the other day on Reddit, I saw that uh, a couple, you know, bored during the pandemic, uh, which it may be the reason we're here in this cabin now, they had 3D printed and painted an entire copy of Carcassonne with like little 3D miniatures with little castles and stuff. And I, I, I saw it and I was like, I will give you a thousand dollars for this copy. And I, I'm dead serious. And I just, you know, don't, don't tell my wife, but um, to me, I just think the game is so entirely satisfying. And I think time only bolsters its uh, rigid buttresses that line the walls of the castle Carcassonne. And I mean, it, it seems that you're, you're a gamer as well as a designer. You know, what, to what degree do you think the foundations of modern gaming are built on Carcassonne, would we be where we are now if it wasn't for Carcassonne? I don't know, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've still only been like really active in this hobby for the last ten years. I buy a lot of games, I play a lot of games, but you know, I have a couple friends that have just um, one of my friends, Joshua Burgle. Um, he and I designed Hocus together. I think his personal collection is over 4,000 games and he's been doing this for like 30 years now. And so, you know, I'll have conversations with him where he'll start citing all sorts of weird games. And this was only released at Essen with 12 copies and I have one of them and it does this. So I, I want to set out the caveat that I'm probably not the best person to answer this, but um, I think Carcassonne does a few really important fundamental things um, that have led to its success, which has also been, I think, instructive to uh, following designers. One, it is quite simple. Um, two, it has a really good mix of luck, but also choice and strategy. Um, if there's a good Carcassonne player, they will beat you nine times out of 10. Um, so it is, it is, it is not just a game that, that is, I think a lot of people discount it as being too luck or too luck based, or, you know, they do this thing where they draw three tiles and pick one, which I, I don't think is I don't, I don't understand at all, but I think that it has a really nice mixture of luck and strategy. I think it's a very simple design. I think it's very pleasing to look at. It has a very fun tactile component. And as a result, it has sold a ton of copies. And, you know, regularly you're going to see that games that tend to find a way to have light rules, um, great interaction, great strategy, and a lot of, you know, not randomness, but, but variability in play that that leads to longevity and those are the games that people are still playing and that's I mean, that's why I have it here in the cabin with me. So, I want to talk now a little bit more about your life in digital games. So, what is it that you actually do at The Sims? Sure. So, uh, I'm a senior producer working at Maxis. Um, I've been working on The Sims since uh, 2005 again with my little year abroad break. Uh, I started out as an assistant producer where my responsibilities would be, um, we call the role a feature producer, which is that if you have, uh, say, a, a expansion pack that uh, takes lets Sims go to university, to go back to my previous example, there may be things like secret societies or the dormitory or college behaviors, uh, college classes, admissions, different majors, follow-up careers. All of those are individual features and systems that have you know 3D modelers assigned to them, audio engineers. Uh, gameplay scripters, all those different components, you know, concept art. And so as a feature producer, you're the one working as a partner to the designer to get everybody in the same room, uh, work through the design, you know, detail all the questions that need to be answered, um, work and chase down the answers to those questions. And then you sort of have to act as the editor working with the designer and the other partnerships to figure out how can we get this feature in a way that maximizes the fun 
that our players are going to get out of it, that, that, that achieves what they're looking for in this feature. Uh, we sort of call it the family feud test sometimes, which is like sort of like, what are the top five things this feature needs to do? Because we always have limited time and limited scope. And so then we have to negotiate and figure out what parts of this feature we could lose, what parts of this feature we could simplify. A lot of the times, if you find a way to distill an argument to what is the experience, we can, if we agree on what the experience is, then there's often a simpler way to achieve that experience that is different than the one we might have initially laid out. Uh, as the feature comes in, we're the first player. So we're playing the game and we're trying to do so through the mindset of the player. And you're like, this is too hard. I don't understand this. Can we make this button look different? Can we guide the player here? Um, you know, can we increase the probability of the reward hitting? And, uh, and so as a junior producer, you oversee several pieces of the game at once. And you're sort of individually responsible for those. And as you move upwards to associate and producer, you start overseeing a full product with several junior producers reporting to you. And at that point, you're looking at what is the overall scope of the pack? What is the overall feature suite of the pack? Who is assigned to what? How am I providing guidance and feedback? And then when you get to the senior producer level, um, you know, so for example, on Sims 4, you're looking at, um, you know, there might be multiple stuff packs, which are $10. There might be multiple expansions and various stages of R&D and development. There's um, live updates for things like bugs and free um, free software updates with new free features. There might be partnerships we do with celebrities or brands. And so as a senior producer, you're overseeing all the people responsible for all those small things. You're working on team culture and team process, uh, one-on-ones and management with all your peers, you know, talking to the art directors and the technical directors. But also you're trying to think out to the next year to think about what technology we need to put in place for next year's content. Um, what changes do we need to make to the team structures that we get um, more scope? How can we make the team happier and more productive? So um, sort of at my level now, it's a lot about team culture and team structure and, and managing people overseeing the individual pieces. And, and you know, when, when one of those people elevates a problem, how can I get them the resources or the firepower that they need to execute on what they're doing? So a lot of what I do now is a lot less of specific execution. It's a lot less detail and it's more of high level and making sure I delegate and empower the right people to make the decisions. What makes you suited to your job? Why Why have you managed to rise up the ranks through the company, do you think? Um, so it's interesting. The producer role has a, a lot of different personalities because of sort of the breadth of our role. But I would say that like, you know, early on, I was incredibly passionate. Um, I've always had a pretty strong understanding of like product and what makes a game fun. And I think this has benefited me in my board game design as well. And, you know, we have some producers that are stronger on process. Some are stronger on product. Some are really smart with technology. Some are really great spokespeople or some are just really great team leaders. So it sort of builds on a lot of that, but back to me, um, you know, I was very passionate, uh, very strong understanding of um, the game design and the mechanisms. Um, I, I think I worked very hard early on, um, just put in a lot of time and dedication. Uh, a lot of it comes from the ability to communicate, communicate clearly. I have a lot of background in writing, so things like clear emails, clear designs. Um, and then, of course, I think what's benefited me as I've moved upwards is being able to change. Like I've had to learn to uh, control my emotions, um, you know, be less angry. And, and I'm not, I'm not one of these like tyrants who's running around screaming at people, but like I could get very frustrated if something wasn't going my way and you could see it on my face and I wouldn't be screaming at somebody else, but I'd be very mad at myself. Um, so learning how to, to channel that, 
um, to have a better poker face. Um, you know, there's a thing where you have to learn to transition from being in control of things to making sure that being comfortable with, I don't control this anymore. This person who works for me controls it. I need to give them the support they need. I need to give them clear direction, but I need to listen to them and I need to empower them. Um, I think humility has been something that's really helped. Um, just there's a lot of cases where like I'll screw up and being willing to apologize, admit fault and try to find a way to improve it next time. I think a lot of people struggle when they move into a leadership position because they're obsessed with being right or they're obsessed with um, being the one to make the decision. And I think something that both makes me more effective, but also in a way makes my job easier is learning to listen to the right people who know the answer and making sure that you amplify their voice. Um, I've seen a lot of times, and I think it's also learning from the people who came before you and some of the mistakes you've seen. Like I've been on several game teams where you have a team that's got a hundred, 200 people. And there's, you know, a lead designer or a lead producer who, if they're not in the room, the decision can't be made and they're in meetings all day. And so everybody's sitting around waiting for them. And at some point you just go ahead and make the decision. And as soon as they hear about it, they come and reverse the decision. And that is such a way to just disempower the people beneath you to hurt morale, but also it slows your team down. And so learning from that, I've really tried where I can. And again, I'm not perfect. I, I screw up a lot, but I've really tried to create an environment where, Hey, you own this. This is yours. I'm going to check in with you. I'm going to ask some questions. And if you have the answers, cool. I'm going to get back out of your hair um, and making sure that you empower really smart people to make the decision, to figure it out. And when they make, and when they make a decision, as long as it's not like just, terrible, as long as it's roughly within the realm of where you're going, because you've set out the vision, then you just back it up and say, great, that'll do. Um, I think it's a really big mistake when the decision has to be exactly the one that you want. Whereas there's a lot of times where there might be three or four options that work, and maybe that's not the one you would have chosen, but if it still technically works, um, and it's not in, in the upside and the, the possibility of mistakes still works out, then let's run with it and give those people the opportunity to, to, to drive. And so what has working at The Sims taught you, firstly, about people and secondly, about human beings' predilection for voyeurism? It's, uh, it is fascinating. So I will say one of the best things is that I, like, typically am not a Sims player. Like, I don't go home and play The Sims, but I know who my players are and I know what they want. And so it has been, I think, an incredible benefit to my career and just my outlook, which is it is my job to not make the Sims to be what I would want the Sims to be. It is my job to champion the game to be what they want it to be. And I think that's been a really good way to have a perspective that I can bring to it while still understanding the end goal. Now, I think that it's very fascinating to watch how much people get attached to digital characters who fall in love, who do things they aren't expecting, um, to see people get upset when they die, um, there was a really powerful article that um, I think the podcast was called The Nod, where a young girl's I think grandmother died and she was very close to her and she recreated her grandmother in The Sims, but she turned aging off and she realized at some point that she would have to let her grandmother in The Sims die. And it was like this, it was how she healed her like real life pain through using the game. I thought that was kind of incredible um, and, and just sort of like beautiful to listen to. Um, it's fascinating. And like you've, I've seen people like from Sims two to Sims three, we made it such that Sims could crawl out of the pool without a ladder 
And previously people would remove the ladder to kill their Sims. And a lot of people were like, you know, half people were angry that we did that. The other half thought it was really funny that Sims were finally smart enough to do that. And then they figured out new ways to torture and kill them. Um, it's, 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 it's such an interesting, huge community. I mean, we have people who do nothing but build. They never even control the Sims. All they do is they build just incredible buildings, um, incredible houses, either replicas of real world things or their own creations. And, uh, I think my favorite thing about my job has always been the the fact that I work on a game that is about creativity and uh, nurturing. Like some of my favorite games to play are quite violent. And I, I like that I get to work on a game that has no violence. And that is kind of like exploring humanity in a weird digital sandbox. So if we're talking about violent video games, that comes to your next choice, which is Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Why are you taking this one to the cabin? I love this game. Um, I, I will say that I probably in like the last year or so really got back into video games and I was playing, you know, a few different ones here and there and on Black Friday, because it was on sale, I think it was like 50 bucks instead of 60 bucks. I bought Call of Duty because my brother and all his friends were playing. They're sort of the main people I play with. And so I sort of begrudgingly bought it. And I was like, fine, I'll play this. And I've always liked the Call of Duty franchise, but I was just sort of like, whatever. And I have been playing it several times per week since Black Friday 2019. I have, I don't know, probably 340 hours invested in the game. I, I absolutely love it. So it's just, I, I will say this is what I like about it. Um, we primarily play Warzone, and I think, and Warzone is sort of a Call of Duty's take on um, Battle Royale. So 150 players, we typically play in teams of two, three, or four. Um, and so you drop into sort of this like large Eastern European, you know, city. Imagine that you're dropping into... Um, a neighborhood of Kiev or something. And all of you drop out of the airplane and you start with only a pistol. And so first off, you have the fun of like finding your weapons, getting set up. But then once you have that as a team, there's such a strong amount of like tactical collaborative play. Um, just this morning I was playing with um, my best friend from college and we had, we were on the, these buildings overlooking a river and we got into a long range firefight and then we had to move up and, and pin them down. And then, and it just, it has all these just brilliant tactics and, and set up and thinking about what you're trying to solve now, what you need to be prepared for coming next. And I just, when it, when it works, it is the most satisfying and challenging game. And I just, I think it's utterly brilliant. And because it is fundamentally interactive and it has 150 players, I'm constantly seeing new tactics, uh, new weapon combinations, new ways to play. And it's really fun if you play with a regular group of people that each of you kits out your equipment such that you're you're filling in the gaps uh, for each other's deficiencies. My brother loves to play as a sniper. When he's doing that, I play as security to watch his back. I tend to bring a rocket launcher to take care of vehicles. And I just, I love that we each organically find our role, our preference. And it forces so much teamwork and collaboration. And I just think it's such a rich experience. And why do you think war is such a compelling subject for games? <sighs> um, I think it is one of the most intuitive mechanisms, both in tabletop and video games. And it, I think a lot of people think that theme in games is, you know, a flavor text. I think that they think it's art. And while art and flavor text can help, I believe that theme is the things, the interaction that you do as a player matches the setting in which you exist. And I think that um, 
one of the strongest like thematic tie-ins is with like magic, whether it's magic, the gathering or magic in world of Warcraft or an RPG that like fire burns wood, water douses fire, ice locks something in place. Like you almost don't have to explain what those things do. And it just makes it so intuitive and easy to do because the less you have to explain and double check with your players, the easier it is for them to get in the game and focus on what's cool. And I think with war, um, if you are a, if you're in a tactical experience, you know that cover and being behind a wall is safe. You know that there are some weapons that are better at range versus short range. There's explosives, which are good in certain situations, but not others. And, um, you know, one of the richest parts of uh, Call of Duty is somebody breaks a glass window and you hear them and you're like, somebody is over there. We need to watch out or go take care of that. And I, I just think it's a very intuitive space. The feedback is very clear. The consequences and the risks are very clear. Um, that being said, I, I, I think it's a thing that you have to be careful with. Uh, I'm not necessarily worried about, uh, exposing children to violent video games. I think there are probably some that are gratuitous. Uh, I tend to not play those. Um, but, um, I think you have to sort of set out the conditions, but, um, I think it's a very interesting space. Um, and I think that primarily it's because the mechanisms are just so intuitive. And so, you know, there's, there's constant there has been for ever since computer games have been around debates on whether they're dangerous and does this game glorify war and to what degree do you think this game bolsters a narrative of american exceptionalism i don't think it glorifies war but i i i think it i think it and this may be more damning i think it makes light of war um i I think it's, you know, clearly a video game in a lot of ways where you're just jumping out of choppers and parachuting and, and blowing stuff up. Um, you know, I sort of liken it to playing, you know, G.I. Joe as a kid, but just now as an adult. Um, so I'm not sure if it quite glorifies it, but I, I don't, I do think it makes light of it. Um, I think America is, and this might make people mad, but, I'm, I'm, you know, you can just look at the statistics. Like America is a pretty violent culture. Um the amount of gun violence death is way higher. You also look at American history. We've been at more or less a continual state of warfare of some degree since 1945 or 1941, if you talk about our entrance into World War II. And, um, and if you even think about before that stuff that we gloss over, you know, the, you know, our invasions of places like Haiti and the banana republics and constantly going South to, to fight with Mexico in the early 20th century. So America is pretty much always at war. Um, and I don't think that's a good thing. Um, and we've been at war basically since the second week of my college career, which has started 15 years ago in Afghanistan. So I, I don't know so much if that has to do with American exceptionalism, and I don't know what the game has to do with that. But I, I think that um, war is just a very common part of the American worldview, and you could see it all over the place. And I uh, I will say that like growing up, my favorite movies and still are like Top Gun and Saving Private Ryan, but I've also been a history nerd my whole life. And I listen to a lot of just exceptional podcasts on history. And um, I think I hopefully have a much more mature outlook towards war and its consequences that I did when I was like, you know, 10. And um, I think, I think that, uh, you know, I, I know that I'm playing a video game and I know that the explosions are really fun, but I also think that I, I'll just say this, I am more worried about the real things that America does towards violence in war than I am about call of duty. 
And I think until we start to seriously talk about some of those things, the Call of Duty is almost like the two percent icing that is not as is not as much of a concern as the fact that you know we've been at a constant state of warfare for eighty years now. And you you referred to you know war games being intuitive, and we sort of we sort of understand the mechanisms. And so this makes these games successful. To what extent do you think war is a natural state for humanity? And until we reach the next level of evolution, can we ever, you know, vanquish war from our society? I mean, unfortunately, I think it's like the easiest state for humanity. And and that's, you know, it has immense cost, both in just sheer economics and, um, cost of lives and, and time. But I think that it is incredibly difficult to say you're sorry. It is incredibly difficult to have a, a reasoned discussion. I mean, right now, India and China are committing soldiers resources to fight over a small sliver of mountain pass that is so high in altitude that I don't think that they can use weapons. And so they're attacking each other with clubs and sticks and it's over a worthless piece of ground. Um, and, and I'm not I'm not picking on those two. America does this all the time. I'm just this is one that's recent, so we could talk about it. Um, and I think that you know it seems wild to me that we can't have an honest discussion about it. And, and I get it. The reason that the you know Indians don't want to back down is probably because public sentiment would consider that weak, and they would punish the president, the president or the prime minister in this case. Uh, Modi wants to stay in power, so he's not going to look weak. Um, and uh, there, there's just all these weird consequences, but it, it, we, I just, it, 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 to me, it just seems like it's our, it's our easiest state of being. And um, nobody, for example, in the American Congress wants to defund the ability to stop fighting in Afghanistan, even though we don't seem to have any outcome in, in mind. It's costing trillions of dollars. People are still dying, but nobody wants to be the one to step forward and say, let's stop doing that because then the other side will say, ah, the, in this case, the Democrats are, ah, in this case, the Republicans are, are cowardly and weak and, 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 and aren't willing to win. And it's, it's just sort of madness. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
So I want to go on now and talk about the other aspect of your career, and that's tabletop design. So, you know, I assume, I, I wouldn't be gauche enough to ask for figures, but I assume the remuneration for the world of digital design is is pretty good. Why go into tabletop design? Was it purely to exercise your creative muscles? Yeah, actually, 100% that. I, I have a good day job. Um, you know, EA has always taken care of me, and I work on one of the most successful franchises in the history of video games, so I'm very fortunate there. And, you know, EA's been very generous and kind company, and they take care of us, I think. Um, and to me, that's been really freeing. I, I had a question the other day that somebody just blindly sent me, which was basically like, hey, I'm trying to do tabletop. It's hard. How much money am I going to make? And I said, you should stop right now because you're not going to make any money. Um, yes, there's people like Matt Leacock and Rob Daviau and Eric Lang. And, and every now and then you have designers who are just incredibly successful and can make quite a bit of money because their game sells just an exceptional number of units. Uh, Alan Moon with Ticket to Ride, but, you know, uh, Don, Don X Vaccarino with uh, Dominion. But that's, that's pretty rare, honestly. And then you have other people who um, are able to make less because of where they live. And like, I live in Northern California. I cannot... You know, I, I can't imagine a world in which I can sell enough board games to live off of that um, and still have my little tiny house that took me 15 years to pay for. Um, so, uh, it, but it's been quite freeing and that, that has meant that I'm able to explore things and be completely fine with the fact that they may sell absolutely zero units. I, um, I think I have seven or eight published games at this point and most of them I have self-published originally in games like Druids, which was an abstract, or Five Ravens, um, or, or Fort, which was previously SPQF, those sold um, 250, 123, and 600 units respectively. And all of those I made a profit on, and all of those I was completely satisfied with, because in every case, I did exactly what I wanted. I made no compromises, and I was able to find an audience. And because I didn't have to worry about selling a print run, um, and I was willing to assemble the boxes in my garage and mail them out by hand. I was able to do exactly what I wanted, and I was completely satisfied. And so you you came to you came to sort of attention of the gaming world for Cry Havoc, and this is a game in which you didn't publish it yourself. It was published by Portal. Did you have to relinquish that sort of creative drive, and was that difficult for you to deal with? I think the portal one's kind of challenging for quite a few reasons. Um, I'll, I'll bring this up to a higher level and get specific again. Um, generally speaking, when you work with a publisher, um, you should try to find a publisher that shares your vision for the game. And yes, uh, for typically a period of time, you need to re- relinquish full control, but hopefully the product that's released is still within that, that realm of what you envision and where you're going. Um, I think with, with, Portal and Cry Havoc, they, I, I would say the relationship was pretty strained. Um, I'm trying to be as professional as possible. Uh, the relationship was kind of strained. And I think generally they added significantly more complexity to the game than I would have liked. And the, the release of the game to me was not as like in terms of like rules and some of the balance was not where like I personally would have taken it. But you know, that is the trade-off and the, and the consequence of you relinquish that control. Um, I will say sort of conversely, uh, my experience with leader is the complete opposite. Um, Nick Brockman, the lead uh, developer for the game, took the vision and just made it better. Um, he just 
enhanced and heightened and tightened and refined all of the pieces. And if you've played SPQF and you've played Fort, they're remarkably similar, but there's a handful of just really fantastic differences. Um, that relationship has been open and cordial and just professional the whole time. I can reach out to their marketing director, the head of the company, or Nick at any time to ask questions or follow up. And um, so I, I think it's difficult, but I think that it's just, it's one of the consequences of doing it. And most of the time it's fine, but sometimes it's it's not exactly where you'd like, but it's okay because in the end, this isn't how I make my living. Um, there are not that many real world consequences other than my pride or preference at stake. So I think it's okay. And, you know, your your day job is in the digital world and you know for a digital game to come out there are huge teams of hundreds of people is the solitude of table design the fact that you do most of the work until it gets to the publisher on your own is that a bug or a feature of designing a tabletop game it's a feature and i will say that for me tabletop design is how i spend a lot of my spare time I think a lot of people see it as a second job or they want to try to get to the end. But like, I am excited when I have a game and I have a great test and then I get to spend four hours on a weekend in Photoshop updating the cards and rewriting the rules and and tweaking a mechanism and thinking through it. I love that stuff. And when I even get to the publishing phase, like I love uh, for what I self-publish, I love creating a vision board for the art style and hiring the artist and giving them direction and, and working through that and paying them. And I I love that part. I love working with a graphic designer. Um, I love sourcing all the components and and buying the pieces. Um, You know, for SPQF, I had to uh, arrange by hand 50,000 cubes in two different colors for 600 copies. And uh, I I hand packaged every game, which meant that I had to take the box, which I bought from one supplier, take the tableau in the tokens, which I took from another supplier, take the cubes from another supplier, take the cards from another supplier, put them all in the box, close the box, put it in a mailing envelope, put the label on it, you know, take those to the, to the post office. I, I love all of that. And it's, to me, it's very rewarding and fulfilling. And that also means I get complete control. It means I have a personal relationship with every customer and every product that I ship out. Um, you know, when I do my Kickstarter, I, I personally thank every backer. Um, I solve every customer service issue I can come across. Uh, I try to answer to this day, every rules question that comes up on VGG And to me, you know, in a company like EA with, you know, billion dollar franchises like The Sims and Madden and FIFA and stuff, you know, you have to be hyper careful about what you say and how you say it and what you announce and when you do it. And it goes through, you know, marketing departments and PR departments and external partners and and retailers and all this stuff. And I love the fact that, you know, I have all these skills, I have all these interests, and I, I sincerely love putting all those pieces together. And, you know... Sometimes it means I do something I think that like looks and feels really special. Druids was a completely wooden abstract game. It was all laser cut and had this just really beautiful, fun aesthetic. Uh, Five Ravens. I was inspired by a Edgar Allan Poe book from the early 20th century and the illustrations. And so I did all black and white and all female characters. And I thought that was really fun and neat and striking. And uh, I get to do that stuff. And uh, I just, I like it. And and do you have a signature ethos that that sort of leads your game design? Yes. Um, one, I I love the phrase, and I think it was von Molke the Elder from the Prussian general staff who said, um, "No plan survives contact with the enemy." Um, 
I love managing uncertainty. So I think I like having input randomness. So the five cards I drew this turn are uncertain, but I love that once I play them, it is output certainty. And so I tend to make fairly deterministic output games, but, and I, a lot of people will say that my games are very random and the reality is that they aren't very random. The randomness comes from your opponents can interact. So I love, um, I love having to manage uncertainty. I love interaction with opponents and not just mean interaction, but just that your opponents can and will affect your play. And uh, I, I love, I love multi-use cards where possible. And that's the thing that I try to not use them in every game, but almost everything I do has multi-use cards. So your next game then is another war game, but this time it's a tabletop one. This is Combat Commander. And when you send me your notes over, you talked about how this game tells stories. What kind of stories does it tell? It tells the stories of... Um, so the perspective of the game is that basically you're a you're like the captain in charge of a, a deployment that's going out. So maybe you have um, three platoons on a combat patrol and you're with one of them. And so it's, it's, it's limited firefights in scale, you know, between, you know, 30 men on each side um, at the most. And I said men because it's World War II and I know that Russian women fought, but just sorry, men uh, in that case. Um, it, 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 the entire game is card driven. And so the cards that you play, you take the action that you take. And it has a, a randomization, you know, me- mechanic for whether you hit somebody or not. But then what will happen is in combat or at certain instances, it'll say event and you draw the top card of your deck because every card in your deck on the bottom has an event. It might say a sniper and the rules lay out that a sniper is not just necessarily a a patient guy in a tree with a sniper rifle. It's, it's something happening on the battlefield that you can't control. And then when the sniper hits, you draw another card that says what hex it hits and uh, it might hit something and it might take out your sergeant. And I think some people might be frustrated by that, but what it just means is he's gone. What are you going to do about it? You still have to win this firefight. Um, There's other instances where uh, a smoke grenade might, might catch on fire and then the trees engulf in flame. And as the fire emerges, uh, moves up, it might rustle a machine gun team out. So that machine gun team that just seemed impenetrable and was holding down that flank is now dislodged. And you have a moment of opportunity. Um, to, to take care of it. One of my other favorite things is that the game has the notion of a hero emerging, which is sort of like your Medal of Honor um, style, you know, sacrifice for the, the squad. And the, the only thing that a hero does is it gives you another unit and that hero does not give your opponent victory points when they die. Typically when an opponent, when a unit is killed, it gives your opponent victory points. And so this means that you could sacrifice this hero knowing that their sacrifice will not be in vain if it fails. And there's times where that hero will rush into a machine gun nest and bayonet three German soldiers holding down your squad. And it tells these just incredibly dramatic, desperate, emergent stories that are all interactive and within the space. They aren't, you know, deus ex machina. They aren't pulled out of thin air. They're incredibly relevant to what's happening in the scenario. And I, I find it to be one of the most just impressive, incredible, and inspirational mechanisms by which to make a game emergent and dynamic um and the fact that it does it with cards in a tabletop space without a digital computer to help it i I just think is so special and sort of how does this game differ from call of duty is is i mean obviously one's a board game one's a computer game but do you think they thematically 
feel similar or, or are they trying to achieve different things? Um, I think they're trying to achieve different things because I think fundamentally Call of Duty is like, how will you contribute to your squad with your own personal performance and how will you work with that crew? Um, I think that Call of Duty is you're a private first class. And I think, um, I think that combat commanders that you're a, a non-commissioned officer, you're a squad leader type person. So you're more worried about 15 others as opposed to just yourself. Um, that being said, I think there are moments in Call of Duty where you're pinchered between two teams and you could focus on one. You could try to leave them alone and hope that they take each other out. Um, I think both do a very good job of chaos happens in a battlefield environment and you have to have a solution for that chaos. Um, and, you know, whether it's a smoke grenade to protect your advance or I'm going to sacrifice myself so that they focus on me while I'm making a lot of noise and my teammates run, like those moments happen in both of them. Um, but I think that, um, I think that the way in which that they create that chaos is a little bit different, but I actually think they're more similar than I thought now that you bring it up. And so a lot of the reason non-war gamers don't approach war games is because they have the reputation for being intimidating simply in terms of rules overhead. Could this game work as an introduction to the genre or is it also super complex? It's interesting. Um, Its core mechanisms are incredibly simple. The core mechanism is you play a card and you do one of six actions and the actions are move, fire, advance, which is basically a limited move, but one in which you can't be hurt. Um, and then there's uh, one for artillery. So the actions are quite simple. Move, fire, that's it. Then the middle card is a modifier, which might be like a smoke grenade, which makes it harder for you to be hit on this move. Or it may be a, you know, suppressing fire, which makes it easier for you to hit an attack, a unit that you're attacking on your turn. Um, and then the events are actually quite simple because you don't control them. I think the rule book can be intimidating at first glance because... It has a huge volume of possibilities, but the way I found the game, and I thought the rule book was incredibly well laid out, is that you'll draw the card and they'll say, hey, a fire emerges. And you don't have to know what a fire does because you couldn't plan for it. You just go to the index and you say fire, and it says, and there'll be two sentences. It'll say, when there's a fire, um, draw another card to tell you where the fire starts, place a token there. Every time this happens, move the fire. And you're like, ah, cool, got it. Or it'll say, hey, a hero emerges. And my friend goes, what's a hero? And I'm like, let's look it up. And it says hero. And it's like, hey, hero. Play the hero token. He acts as any other unit. He doesn't give your opponent VP when he dies. Simply remove the token. You're like, ah, okay, I get it. I think I think the biggest problem for Combat Commander is that it's, it's a solid two and a half to three and a half hour game. And the reason that that matters is that it takes that long for the story to emerge. Um, but it doesn't have arbitrary rules in terms of like cavalry. Like, like if you play a game like uh, Command and Colors from Richard Borg for a game like CNC Napoleonics or... Uh, CNC Ancients, that game has exceptions for almost every single unit that even I find overwhelming. You know, Slingers do this, but they can't do that. And when they move, they can do this, but not that. Um, so I think if someone was like interested and was okay with the time investment, I think Commanding Color, I, I think a Combat Commander would work because um, I think it's fundamentally simple. Um, but I also think they have to be okay with managing that uncertainty. And I think that's a thing that is very much a personality 
element, less than a familiarity with games element. So I was reading, I was reading the other day one of your blog posts, and you were you were talking about the discrepancies in money between the digital world and the analog world. Do you think that gap can ever be even slightly, slightly diminished within the two realms? And do you, and by this specifically, do you mean um, like salaries paid by employees? Exactly. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult. I think that uh, most people in the world now are gamers, whether they play, you know, Candy Crush for a few minutes every night on their phone. You know, my wife loves uh, Match 3. She loves puzzle games. She's playing Animal Crossing. And, uh, you know, she'll also play, you know, Just One and Cave versus Cave and, and Patchwork with me. Um, but, like, she would not walk out and say, I'm a gamer. Um, but she is absolutely a gamer. And my mom loves match three games um, and she'll play cards when I show up, but um, you know, she's not playing call of duty. Um, but you know, whether it's in emerging markets like India and China, Indonesia, Africa, like video games, especially with the advent of the smartphone are, are everywhere. And just the sheer scale of it means that people can make a career of that. You know, I think it's, you know, people get frustrated that games cost money, but, when you have a team making high quality 3D content, you know, the people working on that team are working 40 or four or more hours a week. And we all want salary bonuses, healthcare. We want to be able to buy houses and have children. So I think that there's just like a, a massive scale there with board games. They're definitely growing. I think that there is probably already happening and will continue to be a shuffling in terms of the ability of publishers to directly reach consumers. Um, I think that distributors probably need to continue to evolve their business and not just assume that because they've always existed, that they will always exist. Like they need to make sure that they're adding value to the publisher because they're taking a cut of the publisher's margins. Um, I think that they're growing and I think they have a very natural um, virality element and sorry to use weird industry terms, but when you're playing a board game, you're playing it with one to three to four other people. And if even one or two of those people go, oh, that was really fun. I'm going to go home and buy this as well. That's a really nice natural angle that like video games don't necessarily have. I think part of the problem, which is chicken and the egg, which is that so much of board games are done in an amateur side path, which means that people are fundamentally less professional, um, less good at what they do. And, you know, looking at something like what Leader Games is doing, they have a dedicated um, head of operations that works on how they do shipping and logistics. They have a dedicated head of marketing who's in charge of talking to reviewers and building an awareness and dates and all that. They have a head of design and development. Um, they have dedicated artists and illustrators. And that is, uh, in one way, a big risk that they're taking. But I also think it's an incredibly smart investment because those people can get better at their jobs they could focus on what they're doing and they could treat, take it very seriously. And I think that investment will bear fruit, but it's incredibly hard to do that. And one of the reasons they were able to do that was that Vast was a massive hit and then Root was a massive hit. So they have the capital to do that. Um, a lot of board game companies have one to two people who are split between designing all their games, developing all their games, handling the warehouse, handling marketing, handling customer complaints. And then they contract out for um, art and graphic design 
And then they have to pay another company a part of their margins to handle their fulfillment, their warehousing, and the margins they make just are crippling and they can never quite get that escape velocity. So I think as more and more companies like Leader have that breakout hit that allows them to create a real company and have a professional staff that makes great product, I think over time that will get better, but it's, it's really hard to do. And uh, I just don't see tabletop catching up anytime soon. And I think that things like, you know, the pandemic make it really difficult because for an industry fundamentally about making products where people are face to face, it's really hard to do right now. Do you think that part of the part of the problem with getting to that sort of more professional professional sort of upland is that the ragtag ad hoc feel of analog gaming and the fact that you know I've met probably all of my heroes in gaming in the time I've been at gaming going to conventions and things do you think that's just part of its attraction it feels like guys in sheds making things for the love of it As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, that's why I started as a hobby and that it's, it's, it's incredibly easy to make progress, to see your work bear fruit. And with things like Kickstarter and, and easier than ever to use um, overseas manufacturing and, and baked in fulfillment companies, like if all you want to do is design and put your name on it, you can actually outsource all those other pieces. You're going to kill your margins you can actually do that. You can be incredibly scrappy. Like I've printed two games overseas in Chinese factories, basically with myself and a friend helping me. Uh, And that's something that I don't think was very possible 15 years ago without a lot more work. So I think that, I think that ragtag part really helps. And I think that people love, you know, rolling up their sleeves and doing that. But, you know, I think that a part of the problem in attracting like really professional people who can really dedicate their time to it is I just think that, Um, I I think salary is a real issue. And like you see this with like, um, you know, government bureaucracy, like our our bureaucracy in America, for example, has just been shattered because the government doesn't pay salaries enough. The benefits aren't good enough. And so why would a new college graduate go work for the state department to make no money when they can go work for a private company and make two to three times what they can make? And I think that's kind of a similar problem with board games. Like if you're able to accept a much lower salary, that's awesome. And that's great. But 
for me, like I personally couldn't do that because, you know, I live in Northern California. I, I wanted to buy a house. Um, you know, my wife is pregnant and there's just like, I, I, I couldn't pay for those things on a board, on what I make as a board game designer. So in that sense, do you think consolidation in the way that Asmodee is doing is a benefit to analog games? I don't think so, because I think that oftentimes consolidation in that sense sort of trends more towards the um, monopolistic practices where they can start to use their size to affect distribution channels and, um, you know, uh, they can consolidate and, and take away some of the creativity by, you know, they're looking for higher margins to pay their stockholders. So they're taking fewer risks because they have to pay all these salaries and they can, use, I, I, I'm, I'm worried about the monopolistic practices of something the size of Asmodee. I think that um, long-term, the more places you have like leader games where you have, you know, a small shop of, you know, five, six full-time employees that are compensated, given a bonus, treated fairly, um, and, and are ma- able to produce hits. That, I think that is, is what will happen. And I think that it's probably okay that a lot of board game studios never get beyond 10 people. Um, I think that's okay. And I think that this industry can grow dramatically, but um, I, I definitely have concerns, especially with the way that distribution and retail relationships work in this space. I have a lot of concerns with the monopolistic practices that we're already starting to see from Asmodee and the consolidation, and you know, focus on big IP and, and you know, smashing the same three brands. Um, it, it's a little concerning. So on the subject of later games, your your next game is by the, the lead designer there, although it's not published by them, and that's Pax Pamir Second Edition. So how much of an original voice in the world of digital games is Cole Worthy? Uh, you mean analog games? Did I say yes? I mean analog games. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> I was like, digital, does he do that too? Um, <laughs> I, I think he's pretty exceptional. Um, I... His first breakout game or his first game was Root. And I think Root is one of the best examples of a relatively rules-light asymmetric game that has really compelling and unique asymmetric factions that feel balanced and interesting and fair. And unlike a lot of asymmetric games, and I'm going to throw Cry Havoc in here, I think that Root's a game that if we haven't played in six months, we can come back to relatively easy because it does such a good job of constraining the, the breadth of its, of its rules. And, 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 and you could see everything at a glance in the table state. So I think that root is such a exceptional design. And then Pax Pamir, I think, you know, sort of going back to some of our early hints, I think is a game that is like that criterion collection of just incredibly dynamic, emergent play, just smart rules that are all rooted in, an experience he's trying to craft, you know, beautiful components, such a thoughtful user experience in terms of like what I touch and where it goes and what it affects. And just, again, relatively rules light, but just feature rich depth interactive. Um, I feel like I could play PAX Premier second edition for years and years and years um, and just see incredibly different moments emerge. I, I, it is clear to me that Cole is just, just an, an incredibly sharp person and, and watching him write about oath and how he's trying to accomplish certain experiences, watching him throw away and rip up his combat mechanisms and why 
he's he's just such a thoughtful, smart person. And uh, I hope that one day, for whatever reason, I am in the backseat of a car driving across country and I get to participate in, you know, a game jam or something with him. And so what does what is it that Pax Pamir does well? And what does that say about sort of Cole's relationship with game design? I think it's really dynamic. So for those not familiar, there's a huge pool of cards. And on your turn, you're often fundamentally buying cards that you can add to your tableau. And when they're in your tableau, they give you um, passive benefits, such as like your economic or, or military capabilities. They give you one-time bonuses when you play them that will affect the board state, like what armies you have or building infrastructure on the map. Um, but then they also give you permanent actions that you can access. And with just very few actions, I think there's like three or four or five in the game total, you might have one player who wins through guile as he builds a spy network of informants and assassins. You might have a a military powerhouse emerge. You might have an economic powerhouse emerge. And I find that with very few rules and very broad, but intelligently and thoughtfully designed cards, you get this incredibly just emergent dynamic space. And I mean, that's also what he does with root. It also looks like what he's doing with oath. He basically, I think a lot of times, I think a place where I'm probably an outlier is I think too many video games tell stories where they tell the story to you instead of letting you be a part of the story. So for example, people love Bioshock, but I think Bioshock is basically an average first person shooter tied to it's a small world where you basically go kill a bunch of people. Then they lock you in a room and a NPC on the other side of the wall monologues at you to tell you the story. And then the door opens up and you go and murder a bunch of people until the next monologue. And for a medium that's fundamentally about player interaction, I think that's just a huge mistake. So bringing this back to Cole, I think that in his games, you tell stories through the actions you take and the decisions and the results of your, the consequences of your behavior. And I think that dynamism and that that storytelling that the players themselves create is, is it's so fun and it's, it's amusing and it's interesting. And I think that, you know, with Root, he creates asymmetric factions that don't force you down a path. They just tend you towards a style of play, but you still have a ton of freedom in the sandbox. And at times they're hilarious or, you know, you're playing the, um, the eerie who are sort of like a dynastic Roman empire kind of thing. And at some point they just wobble out of control from their own incompetence and it just explodes and, and collapses like a flan. And um, I just think that those mechanisms are constantly telling stories and helping players tell stories. And so, you know, I've heard people say that playing Pax for me in second edition made them want to read about the Afghan wars and things like this. Can games replace history books or are they there to inspire us to go and look more closely at these grand world events? I mean, my general world hope is that people should broadly consume inspiration around them. Um, You know, another area where I have big opinions is that like, I'm actually pretty strongly against the notion of a video game design degree that people are getting now at university. I think people should study economics and history and cooking. And I think they should be well-read. And I think they should then make games, which is a craft, and they should use the knowledge that they have to build into that. So 
I think that I would hope that, you know, for example, when I was listening to Mike Duncan's revolutions about the Haitian revolution, which is the only successful slave rebellion in history that like, you know, is there a game that I could play to experience that thing? And there, there isn't to my knowledge. Um, there are there books that I can read to learn more and get more details. And I think, you know, having something like PAX Premier, where you could play it, get excited by this just tumultuous and, and very unique period in history, and then you can go read about it, and then you can think about how it affects the, the modern Afghanistan wars and the wars between um, the Mujahideen and the Soviet Union in the 80s. And you could play um, games like, was it A Distant Plane from, um, from GMT? I, I think it's really cool that we have so many mediums by which to experience and explore this space. And um, so I don't know if I would so much as advocate for games to replace it, but I, I love that games such as Coles are a worthy supplemental to podcasts and movies and books um, and in some ways equals because they help people explore such an interesting idea in a way that is robust and per- like, cause games are interactive and a book is not. And so the fact that you could say, Oh man, I now know what it was like to be in that person's shoes to a degree. I think that's really fascinating. So I want now to talk about the future. So, so what do you have coming up in the future that we can experience? So my, my most recent design fort is, um, um, that is a innovative, um, fairly pure deck builder and tableau game that um, does a lot of neat new things. And it's, it's called Fort. It's about little kids in the neighborhood, you know, building up their, their posse of friends and, and building a fort. And basically it's it kind of, um, although I didn't pick the theme when it was proposed to me, um, as we talked about earlier in this interview, it is very reminiscent of my childhood. And so I really love the theme and love how it works. And it's, it's probably my favorite design that I've made. I think it's a really, really good game. I think it'll be, you know, the game that I am most remembered for, both in terms of just volume and quality. Um, I have another game, Five Ravens, which I self-published a couple years ago. That has been signed. Um, and I would expect in the nearish future for more details on that to emerge from the publisher. I have a handful of my other games being considered right now, so I probably shouldn't talk too much about those, but there's more stuff on the horizon. And then... Um, with some of the, the recognition and awareness from Fort, I have quite a few publishers interested in working with me, which is usually how these things happen. And um, one in particular, I wrote two unique design pitches for them, one of which I think is uh, really quite innovative um, and it's sort of a mixture of um, Euro mechanisms and, and conflict. And so um, hopefully some of those pitches are picked up and I'll get to, to dive into them. I'm sorry, that was kind of a vague answer because a lot of it's uh, in progress and I can't say too much just yet. So if I wanted to explain a Grant Rodiek game to someone, what would I say to them? I would say it is going to be a game about managing uncertainty amidst the decisions of your opponents. Great. So your last game then is Star Realms. Is this game the quintessence of the deck builder? I think so. When I started designing Fort, which was SPQF when I printed it myself, but it's now Fort, so we're going to call it Fort. Um, I wanted to make a unique game in the deck building genre, and I saw that as an incredibly large challenge just due to the sheer volume and success of the genre. And so I looked at what I sort of consider the two sort of main 
Um, if you think about this in terms of like biology, like kingdom, phylum, things like that, I, the, the two sort of main um, versions of deck building are dominion in which a set pool of cards are laid out and everybody can purchase from them or uh, star realms where there's a shared pool of cards that you buy to deny each other. But also instead of them being sets of matching cards, it's, it's a ever growing deck of uncertainty. Um, and I say Star Realms, which um, followed Ascension, which did it first, but I think Star Realms is a, a little bit of a cleaner and superior design. So we're just going to use Star Realms for all intents and purposes. Um, so with uh, with Fort, I had to think about what was different. And one thing I noticed from those two games is that most deck builders are fundamentally about buying and acquiring cards, and they have money, and they have a ramp up with that. And so that, to me, seemed like the clear area to distinguish myself. I will say that Star Realms probably has my, um, I, I really like what we did in Fort, um, but I, I want to be careful not to just sit here and promote my own stuff. So I think that my preferred method of deck building is Star Realms because I like the variance of the deck. I like how much it changes. I like how much you can react to what your opponent is doing and sort of like counter purchase if they're going down a certain strategy or um, focus more on your own strategy. So um to answer your question very roundaboutly, yes, I, I really like the just cleanliness and the variance of what Star Realms lets a player do. And in the notes you sent me, you called the game simple, silly, and pure. What did you mean by that? Simple. So, um, you know, you basically purchase cards and then there's more or less four things that cards do. You can, they can add health. They can take away enemy health. They can let you draw cards. They can let you discard cards. Um, and that's, that's basically it. Um, there's a little more variance than that, but not a whole lot. And so that's sort of the simplicity of it. Um, there's also the really clever combo mechanism. There's four colors of cards. And if you play, um, most cards have a like an action that you take just when you play it. But then a lot of them will have a bonus action that if you play two cards of the same color, you get all the bonus actions. So that's, again, very simple. Um, the silly part of it is that with the bonus actions and all the stuff you're playing, you know, I might play a, a green blob space fleet that hits you for 25 damage and then a, a three, you know, yellow frigates that force you to discard four cards. So on your next turn, you're at one life and you only have one card in your hand. And I think that that's kind of like ridiculous, but it's still a strategic game. Like my friend Josh that I mentioned earlier, he beats me probably a solid six or seven games out of 10, even though it has this high degree of variance and some randomness um and to me that's the sign of a really killer game when it's like has lots of uncertainty but it is still very skillful um so to me that's sort of the silliness of it it's just these huge explosive wild combos it's very simple very easy to learn you know i've taught this game to my brother who's not super into games um i've taught it to so many people and it's just it's so easy to play and how important is because there are some games that seem that can deliver incredible experiences but they feel unwieldy and then there are some games like this like i mean you mentioned modern art like pretty much all kinesia games that the joy is in the in the pure sort of stripped back nature of them how important is elegance to game design would you say I think that there is an obsession some people have, which is that all games should be as elegant as possible, no matter what. Um, I like to tweak that to your game. Your game should have a goal in your design on what you're trying to accomplish. And your game should be as elegant as possible to accomplish that goal. 
I think whenever you're making a feature, I think whenever you're making a game, you have to think of it as an ecosystem. And I think that your game can only sustain so much complexity. And so I think that if your goal for your game, for example, with Cry Havoc, for me, when I was making the original prototype, the goal was combat. I wanted the focus to be on combat. So I intentionally stripped back potential complexity in areas like turn order mechanisms or card play mechanisms. I intentionally made those really simple because I wanted to funnel all the complexity into the combat. So I think you need to have a balance of complexity. If you think about it as like your cup can run over, there can be too much for the player to worry about or focus on. And so I think you need to think about your overall complexity. I think you need to think about what each mechanism's purpose is in that ecosystem. And if there is a simpler way to accomplish the same outcome, you should pursue that. And I think your game should say something. And I think that your mechanisms should focus their complexity on the really special thing that your game is trying to say. And so I don't believe in, you know, elegance above all else, but I do believe that people need to be very conscious about not getting carried away with complexity and not making players spend six minutes to determine turn order if that's not really the focus of the game. So one last question then. You're, you're heading out of California, the apocalypse is coming, and you're driving down the road and you go around a corner and the backseat flies open. Four of the games fly out down a ravine into a river and are swept away to posterity. Which game do you hope is sitting on the backseat of the car? How many people are in this cabin with me? However many you wish. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hope that Pax Pamir is still there because I think that it has the most variance. And as we grow old and wizened and sad and, and cheerful and complete each other's sentences and are drinking our, you know, barley coffee that we're making, I think that it is the game that will provide the most joy, the longest the most longevity and will appeal to the most people. So if people want to get hold of you, they want to see what you're up to and what's coming in the future, how can they go about doing that? Sure. So I am always on Twitter. Um, so if you uh, follow me at at hyperbole, gay, uh, at hyperbole grant, so it's H-Y-P-E-R-B-O-L-E-G-R-A-N-T, you could find me on Twitter. If you want to send me an email to talk about game design, you can find me at grant at hyperbolegames.com. And uh, those are probably the two best ones. And, uh, you know, from there, we can, we can follow up. Brilliant. Well, Grant Rodiek, thank you very much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. You can support the show in many ways. You can tell your friends. You can talk about it on social media. You can talk about it in your own blog, podcast or video. Or you can support it directly by going to patreon.com forward slash 5G for D for a rolling donation or for a one-off donation, hitting the PayPal link at the bottom of the website, 5gamesfordoomsday.com. It's these donations that keep the show going. Also, if you want to say something nice about the show, or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on Twitter at 5Games4Doomsday, or send me an email at 5GamesForDoomsday at gmail.com. And if I've managed to leap away from the monkeys with power hammers and the ever-increasing sense that I'll never be any good, I'll see you in two weeks for another 5 Games for Doomsday.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.